We're celebrating 10 years of Monocle 24 by counting down some of our favorite moments on air. From live broadcasts out on the road to coverage of the biggest news stories of the decade, to some of the many famous names that have graced our studios around the world. First up, what's a lazy Sunday morning without a weekend crossword? We're going to hear from an American crossword champion called Daniel Fayer now. He talked about his achievements in crossword competitions to Pauline Efferman for Monocle on Culture back in 2014. I use the first puzzle to calm my nerves a little bit. When you finish the puzzle, you'll check the clock first thing. The scoring is done by minute, so if you finish the puzzle and you've got 40 seconds left in the minute, you'll use that 40 seconds to check your grid, make sure there's no empty squares. That was a mistake I made one year. I feel like I have to just keep it up and not make a mistake. I don't want to try too hard, I don't want to race too fast. We're all nerding out about crosswords, and these crosswords in particular, which are usually the best ones, uh, some of the best ones that we see all year. On your mark, get set, go. I always did puzzles when I was a kid, but I wasn't call myself a puzzle person. I started doing the Sunday New York Times crossword in college when I got my hands on the Times magazine. I would help my aunt solve the Sunday puzzle because she liked to do that. I didn't really get into puzzles seriously until I saw the movie Wordplay. A dramatic come from behind last second victory. Ellen is the winner. Hollywood couldn't have scripted a better finish. I found out that the crossword tournament was going to be in Brooklyn that year for the first time. And since I lived in New York and I had that weekend free, I thought, oh, I like to do crosswords. Maybe I will check it out. And in the few months leading up to that first tournament, I got hooked. I started downloading all of the crosswords online that I could. I bought a whole bunch of puzzle books. I bought a book of past tournament puzzles and started solving those. And I did pretty well the first time. And by that point, I was totally addicted. I started doing probably 20 to 25 puzzles per day on average, and I was getting faster very quickly. Over the next couple of years, I worked my way up to the top of the, the, top of the standings. So you actually got interested in crossword puzzles seriously because of the tournament. Can you describe what the atmosphere is like during a competition like that? There's 600 people in a room sitting at long tables, all solving the same puzzle. So it's very quiet. And slowly, people finish and start walking out of the room and going out into the hallway and talking about how fast we all did that puzzle and whether we all made a mistake. Checking if there, if there are any questionable crossings, we will compare notes and see if we all got it correct. The people that come to a crossword tournament are all very interested in words, so they're interesting people from all walks of life. It's a surprisingly friendly group especially among the top competitors. We're all friends. We're not really rivals. And we support each other. We're, we're happy whoever comes away with the title, I think. You mentioned that you do 20 to 25 puzzles a day. What else do you get when you compete? Why compete? Well, at this point, I'm showing up because I have a chance at winning a cash prize. The reason a lot of people show up is not because they're trying to win a prize, but because it's the main 
meeting place. It's the main convention for crossword fans around the country and around North America. So you flew in from San Francisco this morning to compete. Is there any way you're preparing for this weekend? I've been doing more puzzles in the last couple of weeks than I usually do. I've printed out a bunch of extra puzzles from the archives of the New York Times. I've gotten a couple of books to work through, and all of the daily puzzles that I would usually do on my computer, I'm printing out and doing on paper, because that's how the tournament is run. It's all pencil and paper. What is the difference? I'm faster solving on the computer than on paper, and I don't have to print it out, waste paper and ink, and I can do it faster when I'm typing than writing. So for most of the year, I'll do the times and all the other puzzles uh, on my computer on a program called Across Light. But for the last month or two before the tournament, increasingly, I will print them out and do them on paper so that I can practice having my eye go to the right place. The hardest part about solving on paper is looking in the right place. I'm looking at 24 across, my eye has to go to the clue for 24 across and find it immediately in the list and then go back. So it's jumping back and forth between writing in the grid and finding the right clues. And I've usually got more than one clue in my head at the same time. I'm trying to write constantly and look here, there, up and down at the right clue. So getting into that groove is the most important thing I can do before the tournament so that I don't waste precious seconds trying to find a clue. And would you consider competing internationally? No. If people call me the world champion at crosswords, I have to correct them because I can't beat Englishmen at a British-style crossword which are a different style. Those are what we call cryptic crosswords in America. And I'm decent at those, but I can't do the crosswords in The Guardian, for instance, which you know a, a Brit can knock off in 15 minutes if they're good. And I don't speak any other languages, so I can't do French crosswords or Italian crosswords or Japanese crosswords. Almost every language has a style of crosswords. Um, it's popular all around the world, but I can't do any of them except for American crosswords. <laughs> Nine letter word for cocktail with a cherry. Fifteen letter word for resistant to moisture, say. Now, back in 2019, we commissioned the writer Dan Richards to write a short story about road trips for us. He chose the great American road trip through Cascadia and wrote a story called Ursa Major, which has been voiced by Ben Dillaway. Let's now have a listen. Bears were first mentioned as we approached the Cascades on Highway 99. Weekend yawning, weather set fair, we decided apropos of very little to make a beat pilgrimage. I was in Seattle, Colin was around, we'd both read On the Road, and were in the same state as the Firewatch cabin Kerouac had manned the summer of 1956. So that Friday night found us driving the route Jack Kerouac had hitched, Seattle, Burlington, Cedro Woolley. The description he later wrote of the journey is windshield filmic, and the dreamy panoramic excitement he relates, the saturated spool of an emerald and scarlet landscape and dusted bronze chimed with our ride too. Kerouac was following the lead of his great friend Gary Schneider, poet, Buddhist, and fire lookout of several seasons' experience. When Kerouac's stint on Desolation Peak was confirmed, Schneider wrote him a long and detailed letter explaining what to expect whilst there and watch for en route, on the way in, at the Forest Service HQ at Marble Mount, and once ensconced on his mountaintop. Schneider didn't mention bears. 
Colin, driving, mentioned bears as we left the main highway and the cascades began to rise on the northeast horizon. The sun was sinking and Mount Baker shone twin peak to my left. Will we need mace, I wonder? Colin asked the car at large, keeping his eyes on the road, his tone level, light. Mace, I repeated blankly. The word meant nothing to me in the moment beyond dried nutmeg. Mace? Bear mace, for the bears, said Colin. He was wearing aviator shades, amber orbs reflecting the lights of passing traffic and the flaring gold of the Appenglow now conflagrating the peaks ahead. Mace for the bears, he said in the way some people say. Now, before we leave, do you have your keys? My mind flew back, some 25 years, to the day my grandfather unveiled a telegraph pole he put up in his garden, a 12-foot pole with pegs either side to make rungs. A bear pole, he called it. There at the top was a bun. I remember clambering up it in the red sun, the feel of rough wood on my palms, the smell of creosote close to my face, disregarding splinters, the fact the bun was nailed to the top with one large silvery nail. That day, I indelibly learned two things. My grandfather was a truly amazing man, and that bears, above all, liked buns. No, I don't think so, I said to the car. I don't think the bears would like it. We should be so lucky as to meet a bear, I thought. And there we let it rest for the time being. Colin turned the radio on. Dusk fell, the shades came off, and the dashboard's glow took over the cab. Now the sky was an arrow of broken blues framed in the valley's V. Barns and fields were becoming less numerous, and route options dwindled, the roads becoming the road. The formerly loaf-like mountains had sharpened huge green brutes, each on the shoulder of the next, the river to our right running faster, whiter, nature taking over, the landscape beginning to bite. In 1927, whilst climbing in Canada, my great-great-uncle urinated on a grizzly bear. In order to unnerve it, he said. The best, indeed only, written account of the incident comes from a letter sent to the London Review of Books by Mr. Jeremy Bernstein of New York. Sir, in my freshman year at Harvard, I was one of at least 200 students to take a general education course in which I.A. Richards was a lecturer. He was one of the best I've ever heard. We also shared an interest in mountaineering. He gave a talk on climbing in the Canadian Rockies, the high point of which was an encounter with a bear. It came into a two-story cabin where Richards was staying and seemed inclined to climb the stairs up which Richard had retreated. Richards said the way he dealt with the bear was to pee on it from the balcony that overlooked the ground floor. The bear, he said, got the message and promptly left the cabin. My father vaguely remembers a version of this story from his childhood. The bear was apparently so disgusted that it left from the cabin immediately, but I imagine the line between so disgusted that it left either alone and so disgusted and outraged that the bear ran up the stairs and ripped him limb from limb was very thin and a replay might not have returned the same result. I thought about this as we drove, my pissed grisly musings soundtracked by the flaming groovies. After Concrete, a town Kerouac pegged as the last in the Skagit Valley with a bank and a 510, the cascades closed to monster, beasty figures waiting just beyond our beams. We arrived at Marble Mountain pitch darkness. 
Ahead a gas station blazed fluorescent like a close encounter. By its glare we saw a diner. Dazzled, we slowed and pulled into the lot. A mile before a green sign had announced last services for 74 miles. We hadn't booked anywhere to sleep nor eaten since breakfast. This was the last place to eat and find a room. The Buffalo. We went in. Evening, boys, said the man behind the counter. An old guy with a mass of bristly hair. He was tall and wearing dungarees, just the sort of guy to run a brass tax diner named The Buffalo. You Eden? he said. Behind him a grill was sizzling. At his elbow a glass cabinet displayed a vast array of pies. Down the way several tables of silent men were hunched, eating. Roy Orbison was playing a pretty woman. We'd like to eat, we said. Could he sort us out with a room as well? He could. The guy would do us a deal. He was a deal-making kind of guy. He quoted us a price, then did us a deal on that, knocking a few bucks off. One night, sure, no problem, he had beds. He ran the motel too, he told us, beyond the Arkai garage. He'd take us over in a bit, sign here, and this guy would fix up the Wi-Fi as soon as he was done eating. He was the Wi-Fi guy. One of the silent men looked up and nodded. Blindsided by this blunderbuss hospitality, grateful and suddenly dog-tired, we signed and paid. It all sounded very good, particularly the bed bit. Now food, said the owner of the town. Better order quick, boys, because it's 8.45 and at 9 this place is dead. D-E-D. Dead. Shortly after that, some drinks arrived and then some burgers, too. We'd been pressed to have the burgers. The burgers were good. Damn fine burgers and big. My God, the bristly man could talk. And sell. And we'd been sold. But numb nodding had got us beds and buffalo burgers and possibly Wi-Fi as well. Behind Colin's head, a muted Fox News reported that that morning, 24 workers at an Amazon warehouse in New Jersey had been taken to area hospitals after being exposed to bear repellent when a robot punctured a can of aerosol mace. I didn't tell Colin. Now, one of the most popular segments we've aired on Monocle 24 is The Global Countdown, where Fernando Augusto Pacheco plays the top five tracks from another country and speaks to Andrew Muller. In this clip, we're counting down the top five tracks in South Africa. I'm Andrew Muller here with Fernando Augusto Pacheco for the special excerpted standalone Global Countdown. Fernando, this is the third week we've done this. Have we had any lucrative offers from rival broadcasters yet? Not yet, but I'm sure they're coming, Andrew. And and look look at the variety of countries, Japan, Lithuania. I think we should head to South Africa today, right? It's South Africa. Is our top five this week? It is. And, and I, 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 I hope you get a lot of patience with our artists this week. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting top five. It is, it is a test of my patience every <laughs> Every week, Fernando. Actually, number five, we're going to start with an interesting trend. Before we listen to that, so basically, you know, gospel music is very big in South Africa. Okay. But there's, but I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you're a gospel singer and you want to be on the charts, you invite a DJ to spice it up a little bit, you know, the track. Uh, so for, we had the massive success of Jerusalem. Many, many's the time, Fernando, I have sat in a Baptist church in the deep south of the United States, listening to the glorious sounds of a gospel choir and thinking, what this really needs is some idiot with a stupid beard and a bob hat and some decks. Well, that's that's what's needed. If you want to be number five in South Africa, I actually quite like that. It's quite, I quite like this song. It's a bit atmospheric as well. Let's listen to DJ Cleo and Ambusi Radebe with Save My Life. <laughs>
Is there a version available without the DJ? Yes, but I prefer the electro gospel vibe to it. Look at those beats. I love it. Okay, we, um, we, we, we will, not for the first or last time in the history of these sequences, agree to differ. Uh, at number four, we have... Number four, we have... a very. This is a very cool track. On my notes here, I wrote uh, chilled vibes and very futuristic uh, in a way. Uh, it's Musa chilled, chilled vibes rank high on my list of least <laughs> favorite things in the world. Fernando. Well, ho- hold on a sec. Let, let's have a listen and, and then let me know what you think. It's Musa Keys with Vula Mlomo, which I think it means... Open the mouth. Let's hear it. It's lush. It's like the sensation of touching very good cashmere. Do you know what I mean? It's... It's, I mean, we are now two tracks into this top five and there does appear to be a trend emerging of me quite liking the vocals while wishing they would dispense with pretty much everything else. So is, is there more where that came from? Absolutely, but not at number three. The number three we have, uh, I think, I believe the, the 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 only known South African artist there. But again, Andrew, this song is literally every single chart. In fact, it was number one in Saudi Arabia, which is quite interesting because of its, you know, highly gay content uh he's the Do you young think maybe they just <laughs> haven't noticed well it's quite clear actually if you, if, you, if you read the lyrics and the video where he basically lap dances with the devil um he's the young gay rapper Leonas x with the incredibly catchy montero Somebody at the Saudi Arabian <laughs> Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and Propagation of Virtue, or whatever it's called, is asleep at the switch. They are. I mean, probably the song will be banned after after listening live to the Global Countdown for sure. Uh, I mean, well done for Leonard Zaks. I, I love the song. The video is amazing as well. And Andrew, still coming back to South Africa now, one rhythm, I mean, you're mentioning the beats there. There's a specific type of house music in South Africa. It's called Amapiano. So it is house music, but there's a little bit of kind of jazz, deep house, and even some lounge elements. That's why I mentioned the chilled uh, beats. So, and, and I think it's quite a recent rhythm as well. I think started in 2012. But I mean, it's dominating the charts. And actually, we're going to listen a very good example of it. And number two, it's Buster 929 with Our Work. Why is somebody playing a 1980s arcade game in the middle of it? Andrew, it's an interesting... And, and their songs are quite long. They're very atmospheric. They're not kind of... And that's what I find very unusual about the top five in South Africa. You know, it's not like big refrains, kind of those big pop melodies you've been listening to in previous Global Countdowns. Very unique to South Africa. I kind of like that. It's just interminable beats going on and on for ages while nothing much happens. Is you, that what you're saying? Do you want more of that? <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound like I've got a good deal of choice, but I, I, are you there telegraphing exactly what we can expect from this week's South African chart topper? Very simple. There's just, you know, the lyrics are literally just the name of the song repeatedly, which is Kuza Gogo, which means rebuke grandma. 
I mean, rebuke I, who? Sorry, grandma. I think grandma. Granny, what's what's sorry? What's his grandmother done to upset anybody? Do we know? I went, have, have you researched this? You usually look into these things in, in considerable detail. I did look into it, and please, South African listeners, do correct me if I'm wrong. It means, I mean, you know, when things are quite lit, you want to calm them down, to cool down. So. Kuzagogo, and again, I might be completely wrong, but I love this track. I'm very much hoping you're not. I like (laughs) this as an idea. It's a DBN Gogo with Kuzagogo. Are we sure that that's what that's about? Maybe you need a drink in your hand to listen and, and the full six minutes. It's it's a quite it's quite a <laughs> I, sensorial experience. I, I, this. I, I would need a very large drink in my hand before I listen to the full six minutes of that, Fernando. I, I'm just I'm just concerned that something may have gone awry in the translation here. Now, back in 2016 on Meet the Writers, Georgina Godwin spoke to James Elroy, the master of noir crime fiction. Can we talk about your mother? Yes, we can. So she was brutally murdered when you were a child. You said at the time that, uh, or, or you've, you've said later about the time, uh, that you were calculating the advantages after her death and that you were an evil little shit. I think evil little shit might be retrospective recrimination. I was calculating. I was sealed off. I was shell-shocked. And... The final perspective on my mother's death, and I've written a memoir about it, and I went back and reinvestigated the crime at great length, is that I had a strong will to be happy and to surmount, and I did. And my mother's death engendered in me a tremendous curiosity for all things criminal, for police work, for the science of detection, for psychosexual behavior and the uncovering of it, L.A. social history, America's social history, L.A.'s criminal history, it all derives from that moment. You had a troubled relationship with her. By tracking her, her last moments and, and her death and, and looking at what might have happened to her, do you think that you've, you finally loved her? What My Dark Places, which is the memoir I just described to you, does is chart through my eyes in early middle age my arc of reconciliation from denial of my mother and the abnegation of her spirit through to reconciliation and love i mean even down to touching the ligature that 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 killed her to to sniffing her clothing it's a, it's, a, it's a really intense experience it's a very intense experience it's a very intense book there's a metaphysic at the heart of it, it is the dead-end homicide investigation that goes nowhere. And in the course of it, I picked up just the details of my mother's life. And she became someone else in my eyes. It was a powerful, entirely interior relationship and evolution. And yes, I did come to love her and to determine the astonishing extent to which I am her. And as I said in My Dark Places, that 
gender bias favored me. I was a man. I was able to comport in the world with impunity and with an impunity that she, as a woman, in the American 1950s, did not possess. You say there's an unbreachable code of human behavior, but it's breached so often in your books. I'm a moralist. I'm severe in my judgment. I am a frustrated preacher. I went through a period in 07 and 08 when I thought about going to divinity school and becoming ordained. And I realized I couldn't earn a living and make my alimony payments and have a full-time assistant if I was off at Harvard and in Yale somewhere. And of course, I would want a pennant and a letter jacket and what else, to live in a fraternity house as well. So you can't have that kind of stuff. You either get that shit when you're young or you don't. Now that stated, morality in literature is largely the expositing of the consequences of immoral events. And my characters pay and pay dearly for their inaction. I'd like to talk about LA Confidential. I know that it's not something that that you discuss a lot because it's done for you and you wrote the book, There's a Movie. What's your relationship with the movie? The movie itself is the best thing in my career that happened to me that I had nothing to do with. They came around, they gave me some money for nothing. Any motion picture, any book that's optioned with the intention of making it into a movie is extremely unlikely ever to be a movie. And if it is made into a movie, it'll be screwed up past redemption. I just got lucky on LA Confidential. That stated, it's about 15 or 20% of the overall story. When you, uh, you've talked about going into video stores and meeting people who just love you because you wrote the movie. Right, yes. Well, there is the beginning of one of the documentaries that have been made about me where I describe, and this is in Prairie Village, Kansas, when I used to live in Kansas City, an old lady talking about, oh, I just love Delhi Confidential. Oh, Kim Basinger. Oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, what a wonderful movie. And I said, hey, Granny, have you read the book? Granny said, no. I said, then what the fuck good are you to me? <laughs> People need to be I buying know you're going to bleep that, right? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, nah, yeah. <laughs> Not at all. In fact, I'm, 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 I want you to, to, to give us your demon dog rhyme. Woof, woof, hear the demon dog bark. He's got a 12-inch wanger that glows in the dark. His brain is big, but his dick is bigger. His right-wing fingers on the nuclear trigger. Yes, my friends, hear this ode. I porked a lizard and a lobster and a horny toad. I'm the king of writers. Woof, woof, woo, woo. I got a two-year-old girlfriend strung out on glue. I'll end this poem with a sauerkraut fart. Then I'll pick up my pen and write straight from the heart. Hear me now, hear my spiel of Big Bad L.A. and how it is real. Let's hear now from the Berlin-based American conductor Roderick Cox. For our award-winning podcast, The Power of Sound, Cox told us what it's like to take the podium and lead an orchestra. From thinking about the acoustics of a concert hall to the addictive feeling when you're hit by the sound of a large ensemble. I remember first standing in front of a professional orchestra. I believe it was in the Czech Republic in summer of 2010. This was when I first decided I wanted to 
be a professional conductor, and so I needed to change my studies. The amount of sound that's coming to you at once, depending on the piece, it feels like the sound is is coming from the floor. It's coming from many different places around you, and I imagine it's like a drug that once you feel it, it's very hard to turn away from it. It's it's almost addictive. Once you experience it, you want to experience it more and more, and just the the beauty and warmth and the shape of the strings and the the brass and the woodwinds. I think an orchestra, as a musical organism, it's one of the most powerful and fascinating things we have. As a conductor, you're you're essentially studying a score in silence for long periods of time, months, weeks, sometimes years, depending on the score. And so you, you're developing this imagination of how you want the orchestra to sound in this piece. What is the style? What is the, the color? And what is the character of this music? And then when you get in front of the orchestra, then, then you listen at what they are proposing to you, what they're playing, while at the same time keeping in contact with your imagination for the sound and your interpretation. And how do we bring those things into one? How do we align those? There are performances where it seems like all the stars are aligned, where you have a conductor, you have an orchestra, and you have a a performance venue or a concert hall, because the concert hall is also an instrument and, and is an active instrument. I remember two distinct performances here in, in Berlin was when I heard the Berlin Philharmonic play Mahler Six and Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 7. And, uh, you know, those are pieces you certainly know, but to hear an orchestra at that level, the the arguably the best orchestra in the world, produce the sounds that they do. It just completely stretches your imagination. And it, it, I suppose, expands your sound imagination when you know that, wow, that's possible. Wow, it's possible to play that soft and that sweet or that, that still and that cold. And then you build a, a sound vocabulary for yourself that you you take with you anytime you try to conduct a piece where you want a similar sound you you have a reference point for it and so certainly hearing the berlin field being in this in this city and hearing some of the best orchestras in the world play it's so helpful That's the beauty of this work and the beauty of this art is that, you know, if you do a piece once and then you do it again and you do it again, it just it begins to evolve and begins to take different shape with with experience, with your life experiences, with what you've seen and um, what you've done throughout life continues to inform the piece and it continues to develop in your unconsciousness. And so each time you come back to it, it, it takes a different shape. 
there are certain pieces by certain composers I feel like when I open them they immediately start to speak to me in the most fascinating ways and they never get old one in particular is music of of Johannes Brahms and his symphonies and and so forth it's just every time I I study them or I hear them they are like a new revelation interestingly I haven't conducted much of it yet I've sort of been waiting there are certain pieces I would just like a little bit more life experience before I I conduct them or perform them but I still listen to them and study them quite a bit and so Brahms I think is certainly one of those composers that continues to really fascinate me you have to think differently when you conduct an orchestra in in a different location in a different hall because the hall will tell you a lot of things the hall will tell you how long a note needs to be if it needs to be longer if it needs to be shorter a hall will tell you how fast you probably need to take the music or how how slower you can take the music how the music reverberates in the hall and the orchestra can also tell you a lot about their hall especially if you haven't worked with the orchestra before and so if you're working with the Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam and they and they're playing Beethoven 7 for you they've played in that hall with some of the best conductors in the world and and they will show you oh this is how long the quarter note should be in this hall and this is the the best way to get the the most beautiful sound in this space and so maybe they hold on to this note a little longer or play this note a little shorter and that's why it's important in that first meeting with an orchestra is to just listen you don't know how your interpretation will hold up in this particular hall and with this particular orchestra and so perhaps a, a tempo or a speed of the music you took in uh, Chicago with the Chicago symphony might not be the best idea for the Concertgebouw Orchestra or the Berlin Field because the halls are so different. How loud the brass need to be or how how soft the brass should be versus how loud they can be in other halls is, is can be completely different. The hall is the instrument as well. At the end of a performance, you have this adrenaline that is still going and it is an exhilarating experience especially when you can completely give yourself to a performance and be absolutely focused and in this other dimension really where you feel like you've <laughs> you've traveled to another world through this music that's what's so fascinating about it and it's very hard to describe unless you're you're there but then about 30 or 45 minutes after that, I think there is a huge drop off. I think I feel absolutely exhausted because of the, the mental and physical energy you had to focus on that performance. I think what conducting has taught me about sound is 
it's helped invigorate my curiosity in sound and also my understanding, my curiosity and understanding of people. And that's why I think music is so amazingly powerful and fascinating because through it, we can gain better understanding of each other. And so from traveling the world, and even if I can't understand every word someone's saying or in a specific region, if I don't speak their language, to hear them play or to hear an orchestra play or express themselves tells me a lot about their culture, their language, their, I suppose, life values. You, you hear it. I, I mean, if you're if you speak Italian and you hear the rhythm of that language and the, the cadences and whatnot, and then you play the music or listen to the opera, it's all there, the sounds, the articulation, so forth. And same with French and, and the beauty of the French language and the beauty of the, the French music and the sounds and the, the depth and the, I guess, somewhat hardness of the German language and the deep warmth and, and darkness of a German string sound in a Brahms symphony, the optimism or hope or the, uh, the massive landscape of the American people and the sort of open intervals or the, the high, highly rhythmic sound of most American compositions or the, the different modal atmospheres or the minor of the, the Negro spiritual and those African-American songs or the style of, of the blues. And I can go on and on, but I think sounds continue to teach us about one another and our cultures and our civilizations. And I think it's, it's the best diplomacy between nations and people. Through music, we, we communicate differently and through sound. And so... I think that has um, certainly helped with my understanding. And I think I'm a better citizen because of it. Next up, let's hear again from Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Last year, he had the opportunity to speak to singer-songwriter Carla Bruni about her eponymous album recorded during lockdown. I have very eclectic music taste and uh, I listen to everything, you know. So lately, I haven't been listening much to many things because uh, I, uh, I was doing so much promotion that I had no, um, you know, no, all the summer long, I was listening to classical music, a lot from Schubert and from Brahms. So I had a very classical, lovely summer. You know what I mean? Sometimes I listen to pop music. Sometimes, um, you know, it's a very different situation when I'm free from, from an album, when I'm, when I'm in a tour, then I listen to music all the time. When I'm writing an album and when I release it, I'm sort of concentrating on my work. And, uh, and then um, I spend sometimes one month without, without listening to anything new. But, um, but I miss it. 
And let's come back to the album very briefly as well. Uh, yes. I, I love the track I was telling Le Petit Guepard, and then and then I just realized every <laughs> album you have there is a song about an animal, right? It is true. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> it is true. I love animal songs. I just don't know why. I mean, I just don't know why. I like um, I like very much to talk about animals because you can tell another story. You know, there was a genius here in France. He was called Jean de La Fontaine. And uh, he was always using the animals to tell other stories, you know. So, you know, you have um, Le Corbeau et Le Renard, but it's actually talking about human beings. But, you know, it's disguise. Actually, animal songs are like disguise. And Le Petit Guépard is a song about, you know, about freedom and about something that we have that remains savage, you know, that we cannot put in a cage. And guepards are such stunning animals as well, right? Yeah, they're so beautiful. They're so fast. Elegant as well. Yeah. What about in that track, Les Garçons Tristes? Uh, you know, sorry, my French is rudimentary. You're very good French. You're uh, very good French, Fernando. Oh, and very good accent. <laughs> merci, merci. Who is the Garçon Triste in that song? Well, the Garçon Triste would be, you know, my husband. But the, I wrote this song in Brazil. That's the funny part. Really? Amazing. You know, that's the funny part. And um, that's what I like about the song. You wrote, you, you, you were inspired in Brazil to write that song. Yeah, I was sitting next, you know, uh, I did a concert in Puerto Alegre. And then I was, we were having dinner with my husband. And I just don't know why um, something came, something arrived. And um, I felt like writing uh, Le Garçon Triste. And uh, I wrote it on my phone, you know, like in a, in a, in a sort of special, in the notes of my phone, because I had no paper. I was sitting at dinner. And uh, that's when I got the idea. Let's turn back to 2016 now. 